We want to welcome you to The Spin Cycle. I'm Maggie Sarachek. And I'm Abby Greenberg. And together we are the Anxiety Sisters. summer hiatus. It was just too hot to do anything over the summer. Except for blog. We did blog. We did. We did. So we're back with a bunch of scheduled podcasts on some really interesting topics. We're going to be interviewing some great guests as well, so we are really excited to take the spin cycle to the next level. Today we're going to talk about some of the myths and misconceptions surrounding anxiety and mental illness in general. And we hear from a lot of you that people in your life don't always understand anxiety, depression, or any of the other mental health issues many of us are dealing with. And this creates a lot of stigma. It creates a lot of issues in terms of them expecting things from you that you're not able to do. So we're hoping to go through and try to demystify and destigmatize the experience of anxiety and other mental illnesses. So we're going to go through some of these myths and misconceptions, some of the big ones. Okay. Where do you want to start? Well, I think we should start with a myth or a misconception that so many of us have ourselves, even though we have anxiety. We hear all the time from people on Facebook or on our, on our blog and our messaging that they don't know anyone else with this brain illness. They don't know anyone with anxiety. They don't know anyone who's dealt with depression. They don't know anyone on medication for Which psychiatric is, illnesses. It's, it's just ironic for me because I don't know anyone who doesn't have anxiety or mental illness of some sort. But yeah, that's because I mean, we do that for a living. Yeah, I mean, we've been talking about it for so many years yeah. that we sort of talk about it ad nauseum to everyone yeah. we know. and so. But, but we, we do get the, I'm so alone. Or I'm, am I the only one? Has yes. anyone ever, have you ever heard of this before? Exactly. Of course, that leads to so many feelings of loneliness and isolation. It's, it's sort of self-stigmatizing. Absolutely. I think I have some numbers somewhere. Hang on a minute. Okay. I think I have All some right. Okay. Uh, here it is. Here it is. Okay. So here's some numbers for you. Ready? Yeah. 77,981,253 people have a diagnosable mental illness. You sure it's 253 and not 254? Well, it's probably 254 now. But. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, if you think about the fact that our population is around 325 million in total, yeah, that's 24%. Wow. 24% have a diagnosable mental illness. That is unbelievable. Illness. So clearly, not alone. So that's one in four people, basically. Yes. And 40 million of those 77 million have anxiety disorders, which... Is, you know, for just another number, that's 18% of the population has an anxiety disorder. It's more women than men. Right. Two times as likely. Right. Oh, for all those people who keep saying to us, are they the only one on antidepressants? The answer is no. One in six Americans is on an antidepressant. Wow. Yeah. That is an unbelievable number. We're the world's largest sorority with like a really tough initiation. <laughs> Whether or not people are talking about it, you definitely are not the only one. You are not alone in this. And I, I think that the reason we get so many questions about that is because anxiety is so isolating, right, as an experience. And it can make you feel completely alone. And because other people don't like to talk about it, for whatever reason, it gives the illusion that what you're experiencing is rare. Right. 
because we stigmatize it so much, people feel somehow embarrassed to talk about it. And I was talking to an anxiety brother actually once who was really struggling with his journey with anxiety. And he was saying that, you know, nobody I know, none of the other guys I know have this. And I said that that just can't be true. And he was feeling so awful and so desperate that he started asking people and talking to them. A lot of his friends, a lot of men would say, yeah, no, 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 I don't have anxiety. I just take this thing called Ativan, or I just take Clonopin. <laughs> or I just have a few drinks after work every day. Or my doctor thought I'd feel better on Prozac. They didn't necessarily use the word anxiety or depression, but he realized most of the people I know are taking some sort of medication. Well, if one in six Americans are taking it, then chances are you know people in your neighborhood. Yes. So, okay, so there's that. So the answer is no, you are not alone. Definitely not alone. You may feel alone, but you are not alone. If people in your life give you a hard time about anxiety, saying that you're lazy or that you're flaky or that you don't show up, or that you should just pull yourself together, get them over here for this one. Because this is such a misconception that anxiety is not a real brain illness. I'm starting to get really angry. Uh-oh, we got a rant coming. We do, because it drives me, this drives me insane. It's not a choice, okay? I mean, I always like to say it's a disorder, not a decision. Nobody picks this. It's physiological. It's a brain illness. I get so frustrated because we are so accepting as a culture of other parts of our body breaking down, right? If you break your arm, people will line up to sign your damn cast. Or if you get diagnosed with breast cancer, everyone's got the pink ribbons and they're bringing you casseroles. But if your brain's malfunctioning, you're on your own. And that makes me insane because that was a really hard part of, of my experience. And I mean, it is a physiological thing. Well, people think if they can't see it, it doesn't exist. Or if there's no diagnostic test for it. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, but can we just talk amygdalas for a minute? Okay. Okay. So. Love to talk amygdalas. All right. Amygdalas. That's a really hard word to say, but we like to say it. Okay. The amygdala is an almond-shaped part of your limbic system in your brain. And it is responsible for basically translating any stimulus you receive through your senses into an alert. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, if... You're in genuine danger. Let's just say walking down the street minding your own business and someone starts to chase you from behind and you turn around you see that person has a knife. Okay, so that vision of the knife and the hearing of the footfalls behind you is going to make your amygdala say, uh-oh, danger, danger, danger. It sets off a signal to the hypothalamus and the hypothalamus sets your body in motion. Right, and all these hormones are going and all surging these... through your body. And that's yes. when the adrenaline's flowing, your heart is going faster, you might be breaking into a sweat, your muscles are tensing and getting ready to, to flee, right? right? It's the fight or flight response. The problem with an anxiety brain is that the amygdala of an anxiety brain, trigger happy. So, yes, it will work if someone is chasing you with a knife, but it will also work if you're standing in the grocery store. In line, you know, 10 items or less. This is just the way an anxiety brain works. It's trigger happy. The amygdala goes, oh my God, danger, even though there's no danger. This was great work by evolution when we were sort of living in caves and we were worried about a saber-toothed tiger. You know, when we had to be worrying most of the time. Right, but now in our relatively, well, safe 
world. Yeah, relatively. Relatively safe world. We don't have to be on alert or so hypervigilant. But the anxious brain, and this is physiological, the amygdala is in overdrive. It's like turbocharged. And so it will, it will react too often. It will react too intensely. This isn't something that you can snap out of any more than you can snap out of a broken leg. Exactly. Your amygdala is a body part. Right. Okay? So, honestly, I think people with anxiety should get a cast for their amygdala and people should sign it. <laughs> and green casseroles and chocolate cake. And I want a ribbon. <laughs> we should get our own ribbon. So, can I talk about another misconception that drives me crazy? Yes, you may. Okay. So, I hate it when people say to me, when I tell them that I'm feeling a lot of anxiety, they ask me, well, why are you anxious? <laughs> I think there's this belief out there that, that there's always a rational reason for your anxiety. And that's simply not the case. It's a brain illness. Right. Which, there's not a, it's, not a, it's not always a direct causation. Exactly. It's not like, you know, ow, my foot hurts. What did you do? I stubbed my toe. Oh, that makes sense. It's, it's different when it's your brain. It's not a rational process. And a lot of anxiety sisters we talk to get very upset and say, I don't know why I'm having this anxiety. And it compounds it for them because they're expected to be able to say a specific thing that's bothering them. When in fact, unless you have a specific phobia, like let's say, I don't know. Yeah, mice. Mice. There you go. <laughs> so if someone we knew, we don't know anyone who's like this, but if somebody we knew had a mouse phobia... And found a mouse in her basement when she was doing laundry, let's just say. And won't do laundry until the mice is caught again. Right, right. the mouse is caught. Until the mouse is caught, It might right? be mice, but... Mice. <laughs> we won't go there. Just one mouse. Okay. That person, if I, if I say to that person, hypothetically, you know, oh, you're looking really anxious. Why are you so anxious? Then you can say, oh, I'm freaked out. I found a mouse in my house. Right. That makes some sense. Right. And even, even with phobias... We, know, we can know that they're irrational, like I know this mouse isn't going to do anything to me, but it still is a connector. Okay, I have a phobia of flying. I have a phobia of mice. It, yes. it makes some sense why we're anxious. And when that happens, it's actually easier on the anxiety sufferer and on the people who love her because there is something to talk about then. There's a cause and effect to go to. Right. But most of the time, here's the answer to the question, why are you anxious? Ready? Write this down. Okay. Ask me why I'm anxious. Why are you anxious, Abby? Because I have an anxiety disorder, Maggie. Ah. And that is, that is even true of um, its generalized anxiety disorder. It's also true of panic. Um, yeah, if we understood why we were panicking when we panicked, then right. we would know it was a panic attack and not right. a heart attack. Right. There's nothing <laughs> in the grocery store that we are particularly afraid of, but we are having a panic attack while we're in line. There's right. no... We don't know why, which is why it feels so like we're having a heart attack or anything else that anxiety feels like. I'm just in the grocery store. There's nothing here to be afraid of, so I must be ill. I must have a physical illness, which anxiety is, but I must have a physical illness that's causing these symptoms, such right. as a racing heart, etc. Right. So there's a lot of myths surrounding treatment of anxiety disorder and other mental illnesses as well. And one myth is that a healthy lifestyle, so eating right, exercising, can be a cure for anxiety. Now, I definitely grew up with this myth because my too. mother felt that if I just ate right, if I just spend time exercising, if I kept my weight low, you can't be anxious. Yeah, ditto. Skinny and anxious don't go together. Right. There are mind. no skinny, anxious people. <laughs> right. In my mother's mind. Right. 
Um, and if you were skinny and anxious, it was okay because you were skinny. Right. Um, <laughs> so, but here, here's the thing. Eating a healthy diet and exercising is beneficial in so many different ways. If you can do it. If you can do it. But if you are having panic attacks or acute anxiety, OCD or PTSD, which is obsessive compulsive disorder or post-traumatic stress disorder or panic or, or even a lot of generalized anxiety, it isn't the cure. And in fact, you know, for some people like, like myself, when I'm in, when I have terrible panic attacks, I can't eat at all. So there's no healthy eating. There's no unhealthy eating. And I'll, and I'll add to that, that when I'm having acute panic or acute anxiety, I can't exercise at all because if I start to exercise, then I am elevating my heart rate and sweating and starting to compound the very symptoms that I'm having. And it just makes it worse. So I, I mean, I can exercise very comfortably during mild anxiety, but if I'm in the throes of some acute stuff, I can only eat sugar and not exercise. When you're having panic attacks, it is true that for a lot of people, they can't go running. They can't do anything that's going to induce a Remember lot of doctor sweating. that kept telling me to take up running? Start training for a marathon. It'll make you feel better. Now, I, just, I guess I should just say in, uh, in fairness to other people out there that I do feel significantly better anxiety-wise when I'm, when I'm not eating a high-sugar diet. But giving up sugar in and of itself doesn't cure anxiety. Another myth out there about anxiety disorders and other mental illness is that it's always better to choose a quote-unquote natural route to treatment. And by natural, we're referring to things that don't involve medication. Or that don't involve prescription medication. Because some people, remember when St. John's wort was the big big thing? And... Somehow it wasn't considered medication because you could buy it over the counter at a health And it was store. a natural remedy because it was an herb. Right, right. And we're not against any of these natural type of remedies, but one thing with St. John's wort, if you're taking other anxiety medicine, you're mixing medication. So you really need to be careful. Right. It's, it's, I guess what we're trying to say is that even though the rest of the culture defines herbs as something natural, they, they behave like medications. Right. And therefore should be treated as such. So we wanted to put that in there. But, but other natural roots would be things like yoga, acupuncture, exercise, meditation. And we believe in all of these. If you look at our soothers, and, we believe in all of them. And we do these things. You know, we practice these things. So we are completely pro natural remedies. But we're also aware that with an illness, sometimes medication is the first thing, is the first step, or the only step. And what I just, I wish there would be less judgment on either side. I I, I don't feel like people on medication should be judging people who are choosing to manage their anxiety in a different way, in a natural way. And I don't believe that people who are managing their anxiety in a natural way should look down on anyone who's using medication. Right, and it's not an either-or proposition in that some people we know have started medication until they're over an acute phase of anxiety Mm -hmm. and then moved on to exercise or acupuncture or yoga. Some people have been able to manage wonderfully with meditation or breathing exercises, but at some point they need medication to supplement their treatment. Exactly, and I think if we just change the paradigm and remind ourselves that anxiety is a brain illness. If we keep saying that, 
mm -hmm. to ourselves. It's physiological. Then I don't think there'll be so much judgment surrounding the use of medication. I, I mean, you wouldn't tell somebody with a toothache not to go to the dentist. You wouldn't be like, oh, try some yoga. I've tried it. It doesn't work. <laughs> You've tried everything when it comes to your teeth. Yes. Well, as long as we're there, let's go there. Medicine. Okay. There's a lot of myths around medicine. The first one I can think of is that antidepressants are addictive, which is absolutely not the case. Well, what kind of antidepressants are you talking about? I'm talking about SSRIs like Prozac and Zoloft and Paxil, you know, those common ones. SNRIs like Effexor or Cymbalta. These are medications that you take on a daily basis to treat your anxiety and depression. They build up in your system and they allow your brain to absorb more serotonin or norepinephrine or both, depending on the drug. And they are positively not addictive. In that you don't need more over time and no. you don't crave them. No. If you crave them, if, if they could get you high and if they were addictive, our husbands would have been on them <laughs> since like their Grateful Dead yes. days. Yeah. yeah, for the last 40 years or what. This, this is not the kind of thing that, that people can get high from or that, they're, that, that you can get addicted to. Right. Now... There's another kind of drug that people often take. We call them the benzos. And that's like Ativan or Xanax. Valium. Valium. Yeah. Clonopin. Clonopin, that's right. These are more addictive. They have the potential They to be have addictive. the potential to be addictive. More and more psychiatrists and doctors are feel, feeling worried about the addiction epidemic, the opioid epidemic. Right. And so they're becoming a little more reluctant to give people sometimes Ativan or Xanax. But most people who don't have a history of addiction, most, will not get addicted. I've been on Ativan every day, the same amount, one milligram for eight years. I have had no addiction issues. I've never had to increase my dose. In fact, I've often gone to half a milligram for months at a time. And, and I'm lucky in that I don't have addiction problems and I haven't had to face that. And I do believe that there are cases when if you do have addiction if issues... If you have a history of drug or alcohol addiction, yeah. then those have to be used very, very cautiously. But for the most part, I, I believe from the women we've talked to, mm -hmm. and there have been hundreds of mm -hmm. them, that this is not really the problem that doctors are as freaked out about as they've become. And it's true that a lot of people do die from prescription drug overdose. And that has become really epidemic in our country, particularly the opioids. But also, obviously, we've heard Xanax a lot with celebrities that have mm -hmm. died. The thing is, they didn't die only from the Xanax. There was, there was way more than just Xanax in their system. There was Xanax, there was alcohol, there were other drugs. Right. My mother was on Valium for maybe 25 years yeah. and never needed to go up. Never needed to change doses, could, like you, could sometimes go down. Yeah. There wasn't an increased need or those heavy cravings. So, so I think it's overstated. Yes. It's overstated in the medical field. And rightfully so. They're worried. Right. You know, there right. is a very serious opioid addiction problem. And I think that this has gotten dragged into that a bit. Not to say that you can't be addicted to these things. But right. there's more myth there than substance. Yeah. The other thing we want to say about medication in general, whatever kind of medication, is these aren't happy pills. They don't take away your problems. Oh, how I wish. <laughs> Yeah, how we all wish. Yeah, the movies and, love to call them happy pills. And they don't make you a Stepford wife. No. They you do know? not take away all your personality and turn you into a robot. I mean, I'm exactly, I'm on Prozac a really long time. I'm exactly the same person I was off the Prozac, except not in a constant panic attack. Right. She's just as bossy. <laughs> Touche. Another treatment myth 
is that all therapy is the same and all therapists are the same. And we're here to tell you that all therapy is not created equal for anxiety disorder. And certainly all therapists are not created equal. There's so many different types of therapy. Cognitive behavioral therapy is one that is often associated with people who have anxiety. Now, some therapists practice pieces of cognitive behavioral therapy. Some therapists practice other types of therapy that are helpful for PTSD or anxiety. So one of the things I always suggest is really interview a few therapists before picking one. They should be open to that, even on the phone. Where were you trained? What type of therapy do you practice? How long do you usually think the treatment of anxiety disorder will take? There is also a myth that therapy should take years. And if you're dealing with a very specific issue around anxiety or PTSD or phobias, that can really be treated in fairly short-term therapy, sometimes six weeks, sometimes 12 weeks. I would look to make sure that you're in the most effective treatment you can be in. But therapy is not like you see on TV. Right. Right, where you're like laying on a couch. Does everyone need therapy to deal with their anxiety? No, I don't think everyone needs therapy to deal with their anxiety. I think it's like everything else. There's not an everyone. I think it's a very helpful tool. I think if you're at the point where phobias are getting in the way of your functioning, you really want to... But then you want an expert in anxiety and and phobias. You really want to look at that. Or if you have post-traumatic stress disorder... Or if you are dealing with, you know, obsessive compulsive disorder, you you kind of want to seek someone out with expertise. And that may mean medication, that may mean therapy, that may mean a combination. I mean, most studies have shown that therapy plus medication is the most effective treatment. Another really important misconception in the anxiety field is that The best way to handle your anxiety is to avoid the things that make you anxious. Like you always say to me, taking the back roads versus taking the highway. Right. I mean, if skydiving or flesh-eating bacteria trigger your anxiety, I think it's okay to avoid those. Absolutely. Right. But if what you're avoiding is part of normal life, like leaving your house... Or driving or flying, it's not that we're criticizing that because we've made those choices ourselves (laughs) at times. Um, It's that we're saying that's a tip-off. If you're you're changing your life for your anxiety, that's a tip-off that you may need more help than you're getting. And here's something counterintuitive. The more you avoid something that causes your anxiety, the more it reinforces that neural pathway in your brain. So you get more and more anxious about the very thing you're avoiding. Right. Abby and I both had flying phobias. Terrible flying phobias. But I I didn't fly for six years. Right. And I flew despite the phobia. So it was easier for me to work on the phobia. And I didn't believe her when she kept saying, you're going to have to get on a plane. I was like, I can't. Ultimately, I mean, I fly all the time now. And ultimately, it required me to get on planes. (laughs) Sad but true. And the thing is, is that while you're in the phobia... It can feel like I can live my life on a daily basis without flying. So it can feel doable. 
but it's really important, you know, as I it, kept telling you. It shrinks Abia, your world. It does. And it's important to start to look at those things. And it's, and we know it's really tough. No, this is one of the really hard ones. But once again, counterintuitive, so I'm going to repeat it for everybody. Avoiding the things that make you anxious only will reinforce the anxiety. It's going to make it worse. So food for thought. Final myth. This one is a big one. You can't be a happy person if you have anxiety disorder. And by happy, we mean joyful and have a meaningful life. Right, right. Um, it, you know, we all have good days. We all have bad days. But that's, to me, the thought of you can't be happy if you have anxiety is like saying you can't be happy if you have diabetes or any right. other treatable condition. Right. It's like it's part of your who you are, part of what your struggles are in life. But you can still have a really good quality of life even with a mental illness or anxiety disorder. All right, we have a few announcements before we wrap this up. And the first is that our new book, Anxiety 101, A Guide for College Students, is now available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, iBooks, and Smashwords. And a lot of other places, too. Those are the big ones. Great. Oh, isn't it also available on our, is it available on our Facebook page or our website or oh yeah you can find it everywhere anywhere okay. you can find us you can find our ebook <laughs> um, also we did a lot of work on our website this summer we did a lot of blogging we did a lot of question answering we did just a lot of a lot of different things on our website so go check it out it's www.anxietysisters.com and if you sent us a question and you do not see the answer in Ask the Anxiety Sisters, we answered you in our forums. Right. So go to the Thunder community, and then you can find your question answered. Also, if you like our podcast, please, 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 please. leave a review on iTunes. Please. We would be so grateful. You we really would be, because not as many people are able to be reached unless, for some reason, there's reviews. That's kind of how the algorithm works. So if, if you like us then let people know so that we can get to more people. Right. You don't have to leave our um, a message of appreciation on Facebook or on our website. Yeah. You can skip that. Yeah. Just go to iTunes yeah. and leave us a review. <laughs> on our next podcast, our special guest will be Rebecca Scritchfield, well-being coach, registered dietitian and nutritionist, and certified health and fitness specialist. We're going to be talking to, with Rebecca about her book, Body Kindness and how her program can be a great tool for managing anxiety. And I actually attended a retreat that Rebecca ran on body kindness, and it was incredibly helpful to me. And that's where I got the idea that we should bring her on board and, and have her talk with our listeners, because I think you'll get a lot out of it. So don't miss that one. Please know, we love to hear from our anxiety sisters. So if you have any questions or comments, or you just want to say hi, you can reach us at www.anxietysisters.com or on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Or the best place to reach us would be to go to iTunes and leave a review of our podcast. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. And remember, Anxiety, anxiety sisters, sisters, don't go it alone. alone.